You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Azubillah minash shaitanir rajeem. Bismillahir rahmanir rahim. In the name of Allah, the gracious, the ever merciful. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Today is Friday, the fifteenth of July, twenty twenty-two. The time is four or three p.m. And you're listening to your host, Daniel Zia, live from the Southern Studios of Voice of Islam with uh, the live drive time show. What are we going to be talking about? So, um, as is the norm, we will be talking about, um, we have two topics for you. The first one is about disability, uh, disabled students. Are they being led down by universities? So that's the angle we want to talk about today. And uh, the position that we are taking is that... um, that they are being um, led down by universities and that uh, discrimination or ableism, as it's called, is rife. So um, do join in in that discussion, which we will start momentarily uh, by calling us at 0208-687-7878. You can also tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. Um, the second topic that, inshallah, we will be discussing uh, around um, right after the five o'clock news Will be will be about um, the the culture the the Islamic um, civilization. So what what does Islam offer beyond culture and and ethnicity? So those are the two topics uh, of today. Um, do stay tuned for both of them and join in uh, the discussion by calling us at zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight. Right. So um, the first topic. Right. Is disability um, really a problem? Is it really an issue, um, especially when it comes to uh, university students? We certainly think it is. Uh, if you agree or disagree, please call, call us at zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight. We certainly think that um, discrimination um, or a discrimination in favor of uh, those who are able-bodied, as is called ableism, uh, that is rife, and disabled students are indeed being let down by uh, universities. And before I begin um, a discussion on that, uh, let me welcome uh, my co-host for the show, uh, Imam Salman Kamar. Assalamu alaikum, peace be with you. Wa alaikum salam. How are you today? Very well. How are you today? I'm very well. Have you, have you had a busy day? 
Yeah, I was caught up at the office till the last second, mm. and now straight here. Right, brilliant. Yeah. Okay, that's good. Uh, busy is good, as they say. I love busy. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> that's cool. something we need. Yeah, very nice. Okay, <clears throat> so every student deserves the right to accessible and fair higher education, but not all students actually receive it. A survey of disabled students across the UK found that only twenty-three percent had received the support they needed at university. The Disability Discrimination Act, passed in 1995, makes it illegal for colleges and university institutions to discriminate against someone because they are disabled. So, the Act of 1995, obviously, that, although it does say that um, we are not allowed to discriminate um, against disability, but <clears throat> we also see that in the last few years, Several reports have painted a grim picture of the situation for disabled students in um, higher education. Hmm. So, as um, you were mentioning earlier, that we are going to be discussing the challenges uh, disabled students may face as a result of discrimination and why equality for all is paramount for a fair and peaceful society. Allah is all fair <coughs> and just as this verse suggests that uh, and the weighing on that day will be true. That is when people uh, receive the reward of their deeds from God Almighty on the day of judgment. Everything that hinders their spiritual advancement of a person and every harm that he has been exposed to due to reasons beyond his control will be taken into account. This is um, from the exegesis of um, the second caliph of the Ahmadiyya community. So that obviously shows that everyone will be judged based on their capacity. Those um, of faith, uh, those of the faithful who do not strive in the path of God cannot be put on the same level with those who strive except for those whose inability is due to some natural deficiency. God will help keep, uh, will keep their disability in view. So what we see here is obviously the mm. fact that uh, within Islam, um, the main um, sort of message is that everyone has to be dealt in the fair and just manner. Mm. So Allah the Almighty, even he himself says that if someone has an, a, an, an obvious uh, disability and he cannot carry out certain um, 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 actions that are required of a proper mm -hmm. Muslim, right? Mm -hmm. Allah Ta'ala will, will keep his disability in account. Um, it is also narrated uh, in a hadith, which is a narration of the Prophet Muhammad, may, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, mm -hmm. that those uh, that have some sort of sorrow or disability in this world, um, they will be rewarded this much in the hereafter as well. Mm -hmm. So definitely, um, from a spiritual or religious point of view, those people are being taken care of. But the question, obviously, today is what are we doing in this world? So they'll, they'll uh, receive a handicap allowance of sorts um, in, in the hereafter. Is, is, More is, so, yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Right. So uh, before we begin this discussion and we delve, delve, uh, delve deeper into it, let's uh, agree on what disability actually refers to. So the Equality Act of 2010, Section 6, says that someone has a disability if he or she has a physical or mental impairment that has a long-term and substantial ad adverse effect on his or her ability to carry out normal day-to-day -day activities. 
Under this act, universities and educational providers have a legal duty to remove barriers faced in education due to disability. They are required to make reasonable adjustments for disabled students. It's against the law for a school or other education provider to treat disabled, disabled students unfavorably. This includes direct discrimination, for example, refusing admission to a student or excluding them because of disability or anything indirect uh, as well. Discrimination arising from a disability, for example, disabled people is prevented from going outside at break time because it takes too long for them to get there. Harassment. For example, a teacher shouts at a dis disabled student for not paying attention when the student's disability stops them from easily concentrating. Or victimization. For example, suspending a disabled student because they have complained about harassment. However, despite such clear rules and regulations being put in place, how are the educational institutions able to get away with it? And as I discussed initially, our position certainly is that educational institutions are getting away with it. If you want to in, um, to take part in this discussion, please do call us at 02086877878. Uh, Imam Salman, so, you know, a very comprehensive definition of disability under the Equalities Act, isn't it? Mm -hmm. uh, most certainly. And, and um, I'm also happy to see that um, it just didn't uh, keep in mind physical disabilities, but also, I mean, as you just mentioned, that if someone is not able to concentrate, mm -hmm. that means that there is some sort of dyslexia, um, uh, dyslexia some sort of mental uh, disability. And definitely, both sides need needs to be uh, need to be kept in mind. But at the same time, as you rightly said, um, that is not the case. But um, at the same time, I think uh, another thing which is worth mentioning here that um, here in the West, and specifically speaking about the UK, I'd say that the rights given to uh, disabled individuals are, are far far greater. Than what we see, for instance, in the in the Indian subcontinent, mm, right? Of course, yeah. So, um, I mean, um, I personally have seen many people that have some sort of physical disability, but they are doing uh, jobs um, really um, across every single field that 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 I can look at. Mm. So, which which does tell one part of the story that yes, definitely, there is something being done for them, right? But then again, obviously, we also have to look on the other side. That is that enough? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Is that enough? I, I think for one thing, you're absolutely right. I think in other countries, I mean, in less developed. So, so you know, this is, you know, UK is one of the advanced economies. And um, if you were to compare the UK with, with Africa, for example, or, or mm -hmm. Southeast Asia or, or South Asia, especially, um, you know, you wouldn't even find uh, many of these laws. So the Equality Act of 2010, by the way, this is the 2010 law. This is fairly recent. This yeah. is very, very recent yeah, here, yeah, even yeah. here. Mm -hmm. um, you wouldn't, number one, you, you wouldn't find these laws in um, in those developing countries. Mm -hmm. And then number two, um, then of course, they, um, over there, you know, they, the, the priorities are different in terms of, uh, because the resources are very limited. And it's unfortunate that, um, that dis disabled people don't really get onto the priority list, don't get the rights that they actually deserve in, exactly. the, in, in those countries. Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, right. So, um, a quarter of young disabled people over here in the UK report feeling discriminated against in school. This according to a new report from the Disability Rights Commission. One-fifth of those polled said they had been discouraged from taking GCSEs 
and 34% felt they did not get the help and support they needed from teachers and other staff. That's a pretty high number. Uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, 34% mm-hmm. said that they did not get the help and one-fifth um, is 20% yeah. said that they uh, you know, they were actually told not to not to even think of GCSEs. Yeah, I mean, not even taking the GCSEs, that, that is quite shocking, yeah. definitely. And uh, I mean, those that are discouraging mm, such people definitely don't understand or are not able to see the wider picture here that ultimately even people with disabilities will be uh, having some sort of impact on society mm-hmm. one way or the other. Mm-hmm. So it is very important. And again, uh, th- that uh, reminds me of of the Islamic teaching that it has been uh, made incumbent upon every single uh, Muslim man and woman that they seek knowledge, right? Mm. There is no such thing as, well, the the ones that are physically well and fine, only they are supposed to uh, gain knowledge. It is really um, across the board for everyone. And the obviously the the message here is very, very simple and straightforward because these people are going to be having impact on society and on future uh, generations, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, whoever is uh, discouraging people to f- from even taking GCSEs really uh, need to have a look at themselves first. Absolutely. Uh, it's certainly not doing any, any favor to the society. Let's go straight now to our first guest, who is Dasneem Hassan. Um, he's a P- um, uh, is, the, is a PhD student at Durham University researching the intersection of disability, disability and race. Assalamu alaikum, peace with you. Warm welcome to the Drive Time Show. Thank you for having me. Well, really, really glad to have you. So let's let's start about uh, with rather asking you a little bit about your research. Excellent. Well, yeah, definitely. So to help understand that, I think I want to sort of touch on like my motivation and my journey. So I'm British Bangladeshi and I'm deafblind and I'm currently a student at university. Um, I became really interested in disability justice uh, during my undergrad where I was elected to be disabled student officer for a few years and then I later went on to representing student wellbeing and welfare matters as well. And it was through this. Uh, I had the privilege of being really involved, you know, involved in like national spaces where I met, you know, diverse uh, disabled students and more specifically uh, disabled students of um, of colour as well. And that wasn't something that I, you know, that I saw a lot growing up and in my early childhood. So I guess within these spaces, it was really great to see like the similarities and the differences and that level of understanding um, in our experiences and perspectives. And I guess in this sort of area, I recognised that there was more more need for knowledge about this. So that more or less led me to go and do a master's in social research method. And with there not being a lot in this field of disability and race, a lot of what I wanted to work out or figure out and explore more in my PhD and the area that I'm looking in is how do we make sense of identity and what are the ways um, do what are the ways that we're similar and as well as what are the ways that we're different and so on. So that's kind of the goal of my research area and what I aspire to um, to continue advocating throughout my career. Excellent. Dasneem, um, did you experience any discrimination yourself? Um, to tell you the truth, it's kind of an ongoing journey. Um, I've been at university for you know nearly a decade. So I've gone from undergrad to doing a PhD. And it's hard. I think more recently it's been a matter of 
trying to make that point across, trying to explain why you need such and such support, trying to make sure people take it seriously, trying to sure, ensure that the support given actually works. Um, so <laughs> if I'm honest, it, it, it does continue on. And whether whether things are better or not, I'll, I'd still say that there's a lot of things that need to be addressed. But would you say that things are better? Um so there are some things that are better. Like for example, hmm. at universities, you usually have some sort of like disability service uh, where you know a lot of disabled students are usually signposted, and you go to it and you have your initial assessment and things like that. The question is, as well, you know, it's all well and good being able to do something like that, so at least people know where to go. And at some universities, they have a disabled students network and things like that. But you can't. There's a lot more that needs to be. There isn't definitely. much beyond that. Yes, definitely. And I think it's just, you know, whether there's regular checkups, whether there's an understanding of, you know, what that person wants, especially when you first go to university, you're still relatively quite young. You're trying to figure out what support you need, mm. as well as figuring out what's available out there for you as well. What about earlier in your education career? So we were just reading out a report from the Disability Rights Commission that one-fifth, about 20% of uh, of disabled students are actually discouraged from even taking GCSEs. Did you face anything like that? I, I faced a lot of... I think this is an inherent thing, and this has come up a lot in my uh, research too. Um, disabled people are always inherently faced with much lower expectations in any aspect of their life, in terms of career goals, in terms of you know things like marriage, in terms of uh, social life and things like that. I think in a lot of ways I had to almost overcompensate uh, to get to where I am now to almost kind of prove my worth on my self-value because there were a lot of what well, naysayers telling me that you know you're a disabled woman um, as well a disabled Muslim woman that you know you're expected to stay home and stay, stay somewhere local so there was a lot of odds kind of stacked against me uh, from a very very early like early age that because of that sort of mentality and the sort of access to resources and things like that it wasn't really explored in much well and you know that affects how people view themselves and luckily you know in, in alhamdulillah i've been the sort of person where i've been you know i've told myself that i deserve better i deserve the same sort of opportunities as everyone else um but it was working a, a lot against the grain basically mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right i mean uh definitely the, the way you explain it uh, with the disability you know being a muslim woman uh with a non-british background they're definitely um I'd say hurdles that will put you away, but also speaks about the strength that you've had to really go through this whole thing. And it will definitely give some sort of uh, inspiration to our listeners as well. Hugely impressive. Um, Definitely. So I I myself am very, very impressed with that. Um, A bit about your research. So what what were your sort of main findings in, in, in your research? Yeah, so uh, inshallah, I'll get to hopefully share more of my findings uh, next year, but I can share with what uh, some of the initial insights I've got. So there's a question of, like, you know, whether people have the right information and they're supported by the right people 
at the right time. So, you know, for example, getting a diagnosis in the first place is a privilege and being believed and being uh, being heard by health professionals is a privilege in itself. Having uh, the resources to help us understand the impact of our disability that we have. And that's also those resources being accessible to our parents, you know, whose first language may not be English. Um, so that's also one part of it too. Then also really relates to, you know, what we're talking about today, the topic of how we navigate support and how we manage it on a daily basis is another. So that raises the question as to, you know, what support is available and our experience when we ask, you know, request for the support, as well as being able to challenge it when it's not given or when it's poorly given. And then it goes on to talking about like attitudes and perceptions that we have towards disability and, um, you know, being a disabled person. So how do we feel about being a disabled person? How do other people feel as well and treat us accordingly? And how does this shape our expectations of what we can and can't do? And then this moves on to the final sort of area, which is all about belonging and representation. And that is about addressing those feelings of acceptance for all parts of who you are. Um, this idea of you know feeling excluded or included, and uh, the kinds of people that we connect to, and the kinds of people that we see on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so we obviously did touch upon a bit on 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 your journey as a student. But if you um, speak about students in general, do you think mm-hmm. um, they receive the support they require from their institutions? Yeah. So like I was saying, there's like some things out there uh, and, uh, and you know, we know sort somewhat where to go sometimes, uh, but it only crat- uh, scratches the surface and there's a strong need to do more. There's a need to recognise, you know, where exactly we're falling, where, where we're falling sh- short. Uh, there's a need to view things a lot more, you know, intersectionally. So not to view things, people in a one dimension way, because often we're seen as, uh, you know, just more fire disability and nothing else. And then there's a need to recognize that as a disabled student, your experience at university is much more than, you know, the support you get in your exams and assignments. It's about being able to be take part and being included mm-hmm. in all parts of the university aspect, you know, the same sort of opportunities. And that goes on to, like, being involved with sports or societies or volunteering, um, your social life, things like that, really. Right. So um, really carrying on from that, um, do you have any suggestions of how universities can improve their support for disabled students? Mm-hmm, definitely. Um, so a lot of my suggestions kind of come under this idea of inclusive accountability. So, you know, no one disability is the same, and there's no denying that some disabilities have a better than others, and there's no denying that some voices are inherently always heard more than others. So this goes back to like my point of what I was saying about intersectionality. Like for example, uh, you know, when there's a actually there's a lot of extra, somewhat hidden costs. Um, you know, when you're trying to have your disability recognised, sometimes you need extra costs to get it. You know, to get the right paperwork, and then sometimes there's that expectation that disabled students have the money to be able to, you know, provide, you know, get the access that they want, and then they would be later reimbursed. But again, that's expecting students to have this money in the first place already. Um, and it's not really thinking about those that come from low income backgrounds and don't have those sort of resources. It's also thinking about um, disabled students' safety at all times, not just limited to when they're on campus or in the classroom. And then I guess 
you know, is also about being proactively uh, proactive in supporting disabled students in their entire journey of getting the support because too often we're expected to fight our own corner because the support isn't taken seriously, it's usually forgotten and, um, you know, it, it has a massive impact on our well-being. And then I guess, you know, we can go on to talking about how a lot of this is also about challenging the norm. It's important. It's really easy for institutions to really stick to the de- this like default idea of way to work. But like, for example, over the course of this ongoing pandemic, we've seen that we can work remotely, but that was never an option that was ever considered before. And then I guess like the, the last thing I'd add is this idea of developing and strengthening networks for disabled students. So not only will it help with this idea of representation and having community that understands, it can be like, you know, a great way uh, to help better understand how we navigate the world that we live in. Like an example that I can give in, like during my PhD, I had the opportunity to do, do, to, to do an internship. And it was from my manager who is also disabled herself. And she was saying, um, and also visually impaired. And she was saying that I could get taxis to and for work and that I could get a monitor arm to help bring the monitor screen closer to my face. And there were things that, you know, in my university experience wasn't really thought about. And when I came back to back from my internship, it was like something that I could request much more specifically about after having those sort of conversations with people who, who basically get it. But, you know, this happens all so often because we are so used to this idea of struggling in silence because we don't have that knowledge. Or we're so used to being burdensome because the process of asking for these sort of support is a lot. So, you know, a big part of what I'm advocating for is we need to be able to listen, we need to be able to rethink the way we do things, as well as holding, you know, institutions and people in power, you know, to account. And finally, as like disabled students, we need to be able to recognize our worth, our value, and that, you know, we essentially deserve to take up that space. You mentioned about the the cost that's uh, that's being talked about, that is talked about in terms Mm -hmm. of supporting people with disability. Um, What are your thoughts on the return the the benefits that disabled people can offer in terms of giving back to the society honestly like every every individual out there has a lot to bring and disabled students have a lot to bring and i think it just goes back to this whole idea of equity of access and giving people these sorts of opportunities is i i've i found lots of hurdles that have come my way getting to where i've gone to but my perspective allows me to bring a whole new uh, you know, insight to this topic of, you know, the area of equality and diversity that I look into now. And we, well, what that allows us to do is be able to, you know, really appreciate these sort of diverse perspectives because it allows us to understand the communities that we work with so much better. And all in all, it allows us to be able to, prom- uh, you know, promote a much more inclusive and supportive environment. Right. Um would you also say that uh, somebody who, let's say, is black and, and disabled mm-hmm. has a bigger challenge versus somebody who's white and disabled? Yeah. Uh, are we using black in a political sense or are we specifically referring to like black, African and Caribbean? Right. And the latter. Okay, cool. So, yes, I, this is also something that I, I look at. Um, because I've looked at this idea of, you know, because originally my research looked at disabled people of colour and now it's much more 
specifically focusing on black and brown disabled people. And uh, there is no there is no denying that the odds are a lot more stacked against uh, those who are black compared to those who are brown and compared to those who are white. You have to think about the way that you know you can't hide the color of your skin and there's parts of your identity that you're automatically going to be um going to be you know face a lot of bias and prejudice on there's a lot more it's also important to think about the wider political and social issues such as um you know being treated as a threat being viewed as aggressive and all these sort of things they all come into play especially like when you look at you know, for example, someone wanting to request for adjustment, but then being seen as difficult doing so. And when that's combined with this element of race, there's a lot more to think about. And there's a lot more, you know, we can understand why the people would want to put that off or why they would seem a lot more burdensome than, for example, a white disabled person asking for. It's not saying that white disabled people don't have these issues or whatever. It's trying to say that, you know, this idea, there's some aspects in when we're navigating our disability that disproportionately would affect black disabled people a lot more. It was not only a pleasure to talk to you, it was an inspiration to talk to you. So thank you so very much for joining us. All the very best at Durham University. Durham is a great university. Uh, we wish you all the best with the with the rest of your educational career and, and the rest of your um, your career, really. And, and I'm sure you have so much to offer back to the society. So really, uh, an honor to speak to you. Thank you. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. So that was um, uh, the Steam Hassan, who um, is a PhD student, uh, Imam Salman, at Durham University. I mean, um, uh, before we go on to the next guest, I mean, what an inspiration, uh, uh, you know, for, for her to have come so far with, with so many obstacles. Exactly. I mean, th there are certain people that uh, automatically make you sort of reflect upon your own life. Hmm. And because you know we we tend to complain about yeah exactly and, 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 and we take and these things for granted exactly and there are so hmm. many things that we take for granted and then obviously also sort of raise the question am I doing enough for society yeah, okay. uh, hmm. am I pushing myself enough because <laughs> with so many hurdles she has mashallah gone this far I mean you're absolutely right it it, it was honour uh, speaking with her and a true inspiration. Right, let's go straight down to our second guest, who is Bethany Bale, uh, an educational policy advisor at Disabled Rights UK. She uh, lobbies uh, with the government um, on SEND, which is Special Educational Needs and Disability Policy Issues. Asalaamu Alaikum, peace be with you. A very warm welcome to the Drive Time Show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Bethany, for joining us. So we were just talking to this name, and you may have heard a part of the interview. She's a PhD student at Durham University. Mm -hmm. And and she mentioned that uh, you know students um, uh, even today even at um, you know universities um, uh, find a lot of obstacles and and one would think that you know universities are a place which which would be reasonably funded to uh, to take mm -hmm. care of this sort of stuff. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, definitely. So the Equality Act is an anticipatory duty. It's the fact that you know these institutions should be making education accessible, they should be implementing reasonable adjustments uh, for the students so that they can access their education. Um, but all too often we find that these legal obligations aren't actually upheld. Um, and we can see in the statistics as well, uh, the Office of National Statistics found in 2021 
that disabled people are almost three times less likely to have any qualifications than those with disabled people. Um, and you know that, that's a systemic issue. We have to look at that and say, well, what's causing that? What are the barriers that are making this the case? Because that shouldn't be happening. Right, so uh, what, are you, what is your organization then doing to, to change that? Mm -hmm. So I, as you say, I'm an education um, and policy officer. Uh, so I do lobby the government in various different areas. Education is one aspect of that. Um, but also Disability Rights UK as an organisation, we offer various support for disabled students. So uh, that comes in various forms. We have the Disabled Students Helpline. We have uh, some free education fact sheets online. Um, all of these things are advice, information and guidance for disabled students, whether they be at university or apprenticeships or traineeships, um, looking at various things from how do they apply, um, how do they share about their disability if they choose to, how do they ask for adjustments, um, you know, a whole variety of things. And then we also have our Get Ahead newsletter, which looks at similar, um, you know, barriers and resources in post-16 for disabled young people and also provides a platform for disabled young people to share their voice and their talents. And, and then similarly, we also have our Disabled Apprentice Network, where again, we are providing that platform for disabled apprentices, those who are currently in apprenticeships and those who have finished um, to share their views and experiences and also often we, we provide opportunities to input into our policy work as well where we are lobbying um, governments we can make sure that you know the lived experiences of those uh, impacted by these policies are really at the heart of the lobbying work that we're doing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right and um, do you have a lot of students um, calling for advice and um, if, if so, is that because the institutions are not able to provide them with the support they need? Mm. So we have about um, just over 1,600 inquiries a year. Um, so obviously those can be very varied. Uh, sometimes they're looking at things like student finance, you know, the, the things that you would assume. Um, but around 15% of those inquiries tend to relate explicitly to issues of discrimination um, and support related issues with either, you know, employers or education providers. Um, and also a large aspect of the inquiries that we get may not be about explicit cases of discrimination at the time, um, but often areas where, you know, if we, uh, we or the student weren't able to intervene earlier, then that could lead to discrimination. So, for example, you know, ensuring that those young people really do understand their rights and protections under the Equality Act so that they can feel comfortable and confident, you know, challenging when they're not getting the support that they're needed. Mm -hmm. Right, right. So, so obviously we, 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 we have spoken about um, these policies and acts that are there mm -hmm. to support um, disabled st students. Um, do you think these policies are actually being followed by the universities? Mm -hmm. And um, I mean, are they following those and uh, are they doing enough for mm -hmm. such students? I think that universities definitely need to be doing more. I think that unfortunately good practice isn't consistent across the sector. Um, so there's a lot less accountability when it comes to higher education and the policies generally when it comes to accessing support 
they are a lot less uh, centralised than, for example, school. Um, don't get me wrong, there are also barriers to accessing support in school. Um, that's a separate conversation, but I think at university it's often less clear, less consistent. For example, there's not one person that coordinates that as support or students don't always know where to go um, to access that support. And then often as well we find that that leads to you know, delays and inconsistent communication. So for example, um, students might put down on their UCAS forms that they have a disability, they might share that in their registration documents thinking that they've done their part and that then people will come to them and they will say, okay, this is how we can support you. Um, but very often that doesn't happen and often students are the ones that are having to chase up universities and saying, you know, can we make sure that this support is in place by the time I start in September. Um, and the same thing as well when those plans often are then put in place they're not always shared with all of the relevant people who will be working with that student directly um, and really making sure that everything is delivered in the way that it should be. Often that responsibility falls on the student more than it does on the institution. Right, right. And obviously, I mean, there are two sides to this um, discussion, I'd say. One is mm -hmm. the universities implementing the policies. Mm -hmm. um, the other would be the government that are making the policies and acts, mm -hmm. etc. Um, can the government do more to help disabled students? And um, I mean, if yes, how would they do that? Yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> that's a, a large conversation. We could look at, you know, many, many ways, um, mm -hmm. many different policies. Um, but just some examples, I think improving access to university is a really key issue, um, not only in terms of issues with exams being inaccessible, um, but also in terms of, I, I know I had touched earlier in the conversation, when it comes to finances as well, um, it costs more to live with a disability. Um, so also the, when you're looking at student finance, you know, looking at how you can make that most accessible to people with disabilities, um, but also what we can look at in school as well. Um, there are lots of barriers to getting diagnoses, especially when it comes to neurodivergent conditions um, make you know there are barriers as I've touched on before to getting that support in place as well um, so I think all of that kind of early intervention before uh, students are even getting to higher education to really make sure that they are able to reach their full potential in school um, but then also again that greater accountability on universities who aren't upholding their legal obligations under the Equality Act um, but as I say, I mean, you could, there are many policies you could look at, but I think that the, the key really is for um, universities to really be, and the government, as you say, to be prioritizing inclusion and accessibility. Um, considering this in every aspect of every policy, it, too often accessibility um, is an afterthought. But of course, they must be proactive. Uh, higher education institutions, as was the case with most services in society, are built with non-disabled individuals in mind. And it is the responsibility of these institutions to you know, remove the barriers to their services that exist. Right, Bethany, uh, we read out um, a report from one of the surveys uh, conducted by the Disability Rights Commission. And mm -hmm. according to the results of that survey, one-fifth of those polled, uh, that's about 20%, said mm -hmm. that they've been discouraged from taking GCSEs. Mm. Is number one? Do you think that's uh, that's an accurate reflection of what what's happening on the ground? And number two, what's the what's happening to improve that? So just to clarify, you're saying that the research was done on schools discouraging disabled students from taking GCSEs. Exactly. Yeah, and that's mm. according to the Disability Rights Commission. Okay, I mean I can't comment on those statistics specifically, um, but I know that we often see that even if um, disabled students 
are uh, discouraged or encouraged even to sit exams, very often those exams are not accessible to them. Um, so in that sense, anyway, as you say, they're not able to access their exams properly when we're talking about um, them being the same, having the same um, opportunities as their non-disabled peers to be able to reach their full potential when it comes to education. Right, and um, we were early talking to um, earlier talking to Tasneem Hassan, who is um, who is a Muslim woman, uh, deaf and blind. Uh, mm-hmm. doing a PhD at uh, Durham University. Would you agree with the contention that uh, you have a, a more difficult journey and a path if you are um, both a minority and disabled? Yes, definitely. Intersectionality, that's what we, um, that's the word that's used to describe that. So mm. we know often that those with protected characteristics will face various barriers because of that protected character characteristics sorry um so that's you know the case with disability race gender um you know a variety of things so actually when you combine those identities very often that does mean that the individual ends up facing additional barriers as a result of that and and finally bethany um there's there's always a lot of talk about um, you know what sort of um cost and what sort of uh, money is needed to support mm-hmm. uh, disabled people, whether it's at the school level or at the university level. Mm-hmm. Um, since you are, you know, you, you are at a place where you can, you advise the government, has there ever been any research conducted as to what sort of economic benefits the uh, disabled people offer in terms of the return that they offer back to the society? That's a really interesting question. Um, I feel like I would need to go away and have a look properly to see if that research does exist. I'm sure that there is you know, various work that has been done that you could pull together and look at. Um, but I think even without the research, it's very clear that you know that there is absolutely economic gain from um, people who are mm. able to reach their full potential, who are able to you know, access things that they currently can't. I think often there is this um, misconception that disabled people either, I mean, the, the stuff I mentioned earlier about being less likely to hold qualifications, the assumption that that's kind of just an inevitable and that disabled people somehow have less worth or less ability. Um, and that's just not true. Very often, actually, what is the case is that whether it be employment, whether it be education, um, mm. these things are not made accessible to individuals. And the way that we view that these things need to take place um, can be very rigid um, and very unhelpful but actually um, we can be a lot more flexible with that as you touched on earlier as well with your conversation around COVID you know it really highlighted to us how we can be a lot more flexible than we currently are. Exactly and it, and isn't it now time to start you know thinking of this um, as an investment any money that we pump into um, I- into the educational system or even in the job market uh, to help disabled people Really, rather than as a cost, so it's an investment which uh, which which carries a lot of return. And, and you know, when you use the word cost, I mean that's um, it, it's a, it, you know it sounds like a sunk cost, whereas it's not. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, I mean I think that's the case with all groups, you know, across the board. Of course, if you're investing um, in things like education, then mm. people are more likely to come out with better outcomes. I think as well, what's really interesting when we're looking at government spending is actually where that spending is going as well. Um, I don't have the statistics to hand, but um, Special Needs Jungle is a really great uh, source, and they did some research last year 
on how actually a lot of the money that the government was spending on special educational needs and saying that they had, you know, had this rise in funding, suggesting that that was going towards supporting young people. Actually, a lot of that money was going um, to be spent on tribunals. So actually where um, the council is uh, arguing with, um, you know, parents of disabled students and refusing that support, you know, all the processes that people have to go to to challenge that refusal of support. Um, so also I think that's really important as well when we're talking about um, funding and things like that, um, that of course, number one, disabled people um, have a human right, have um, hmm. these protections under the Equality Act, that no matter the cost, they, they must be able to access those things anyway. Um, but also the fact that very often when we're told that money is being spent in these areas, it's often not being spent on that tangible support. It's often being spent on actually those additional barriers. Um, and of course, as well, understanding that often this isn't about uh, cost either. This is about a change in culture. This mm. is about, you know, um, when we're looking at accessibility and education, for example, um, there are lots of things that we could do that that cost no money, but actually are about the way in which, um, you know, we view success, the way in which, for example, we celebrate attendance in school and penalise children who can't attend as much because of their disability. There are lots of things that we do that are kind of ingrained, um, you know, within education, within these systems that, that don't cost any money. Um, it's just about understanding that we can do this in a different way to how we have done before. And because somebody learns in a slightly different way, that doesn't mean that they are learning in you know, a worse way or in any lesser way than somebody who, for example, um, is neurotypical or non-disabled. Bethany, as somebody who regularly talks to, to the government or lobbies with the government, would you say that the government is listening? Um, <laughs> that's the question. I, th I think at the moment they have um, a consultation open which I would also urge uh, people to respond to as well. It closes next Friday. It's an open consultation on their SEND review, which is their uh, current policy that they're looking at in changing uh, schooling policy. Um, when it comes to higher education, they don't have um, a, a similar consultation that's going on at the moment. But actually, if you want to raise your voice, your point to the government, then um, that consultation is open. And um, in other areas, you know, we do work with the government on um, things like student finance, you know, different areas like that. Um, so, yeah. It, on, and on that very, very diplomatic response, Bethany, um, <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much for, for joining us. Thank you uh, for your time. Really Thanks enjoyed so talking for to having you. Me. And all thank the best you. with your efforts. Thanks. You too. Thank Bye. Bye-bye. So that was uh, Bethany Bale, who is an educational policy advisor at uh, Disabled Rights UK. Um, and let's, uh, yeah, we do have another guest online, so let's let's go straight to that yeah. before we um, uh, we begin to wrap up this uh, this segment. Uh, so our last guest for this segment is uh, Ms. Saima Akhtar, who is a registered blind, um, uh, studied English literature and creative writing, and currently working as an employment coach. Aslam alaikum, peace be with you. Thank you for joining us. Waalaikumsalam. Thank you for having me. Um, it, it's a pleasure to speak to you. Um, Please tell us a little bit about yourself in terms of your background. Where, where did you study English literature and creative writing? So, yeah, a bit about me. So, I, first of all, I was born blind. Um, and I, the reason I say that is because I do know from kind of my professionally and just through mixing with people as well that it does make a difference when you lose your sight later on, especially in terms of your studies. 
So, yeah, I was born blind. Um, I was educated at a specialist kind of school. I then went on to study English literature at creative writing, um, English literature and creative writing at Birmingham City University. Um, I graduated, then went on to work in marketing for a while and then quickly found that that wasn't really for me and then I became an employment coach. That's kind of a bit about me and my journey. Sure. Um, well, thank you for that. And uh, again, uh, hugely inspirational. Uh, so what, what challenges do you currently face um, as an in, uh, employment coach or, or do you face challenges in terms of uh, both finding work um, as well as uh, uh, as well as being able to uh, to offer yourself for support? Uh, uh, I mean, how how are you viewed as a coach? Well, because I work for a charity um, that supports people with disabilities, mm. um, and every single employment coach on our team has a disability, right. and that's why I always say when I promote what we do, when I go out there and speak to people about our support, that's a big bonus, I think, because I've been in the position where I've been supported by coaches that don't have, don't have disabilities, and I'm not saying that all of them are bad, um, but I do think that if you've got a disability and you come from that standpoint and then you're there obviously promoting education, training, work, whatever it is you're promoting to your clients, they're going to open up to you because they know that you're coming from a place of kind of empathy and that you understand what you're talking about. You're not just sort of saying it and you haven't experienced it. So I think that's quite a powerful thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, most certainly. And um, what was uh, university like for you as a person with um, disability? And was the support that you required given to you? Um, so, <coughs> sorry about that. So, I started at a different university originally, and it got so bad that I had to drop out. And, I mean, there were several reasons for that. I mean, we can sit here and blame the university and say that it was all on them. I think the truth is that, yes, the university were partly to blame because um, things weren't produced in formats that I needed. So I don't read any print. I need speech software. I need Braille. I need all these things. And, you know, we I started in my course in September, come March time, and they're still giving me, you know, printed materials. I had to drop out because I got, it got to a point where I couldn't physically do my assignments because I just didn't have the materials, the books, all the stuff that I needed available to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that was a big part of it, the reason I left. The other part is also, and I, I, I still kind of firmly believe that this is the case, there's not much education around, you know, for people who are going to start university, nobody sits and tells you what to expect. So as I said before that I came from a specialist school environment, and again, that's quite important because it means that you're quite secluded. It means that, you know, all you know is, you know, you have everything formatted for you. You're in classes with other people with disabilities. That's kind of the environment you come from. Sure. So to come from that environment and then to go to university where, you know, that is not the case. Yes, you expect change and, you know, you you kind of know on surface level that things are going to change. But, you know, subconsciously, you, you st- you're not really prepared for those changes. Um, I think that a lot more work could have been done with me to prepare me for those changes, to kind of give me an idea of how to deal with those, to alert me to support services. And that isn't the university's fault. That's to do with education. And I think that a lot more work needs to be done with college students and people going to university settings, you know, to, to, to prepare them for that. But yeah, so I, I dropped out and then started again at another university. And the plus of that was because I'd had all, all the negative, obviously, experiences behind me, I knew what to ask for. I was more aware about my needs and you know, generally the whole thing was, you know, went quite smoothly. Yes, we had the odd glitch, but it wasn't as bad as, you know, the first time round. Mm-hmm. Right. 
Absolutely, and um, again, um, we, we, we did speak with um, Dasneem Hassan as our first guest caller today, and um, similarly here as well, um, truly inspirational um, that despite the, the disability and, and, and all the hurdles put your way, um, you are where you are today, and that is truly inspirational, and I'm, and I'm very sure that our listeners um, will take away a lot from, 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 from the interview that we are having with you. Um, so every university has um, sort of uh, inclusion and uh, diversity policies. Do you think um, they are followed? Um, I think again, it's about ra- it's about awareness. So what I found is that it's all very well having a policy, and that's great. But especially at university, like you don't have it's not like you have one tutor and that's it throughout the whole of your kind of time at university. You have so many different modules, there's so many different aspects of your course. You come into contact with so many different people, and what that means is some of them are aware of the policies that are put in place, and some aren't. And I think that more training needs to be given to staff, and I think more awareness needs to be kind of presented to students, like not in a patronising way, but just um, to kind of make people aware that you know it's not a case of, like, for example, like I've been patronised at university by lecturers, and like that's not helpful. So there's like kind of you're referring to the policies is important, but I think even practically, people need to be kind of given um, training as well and just awareness around what disability actually means right right um so what what changes uh would you like to see so that someone doesn't go through the same experiences as you did um so as i say touching on that again so training to staff i think it should be made um compulsory not optional Mm -hmm. because when i started university it was kind of like the disability team said to my uh my uh tutors you know would you like disability awareness training they said no and then obviously the whole thing went completely pear-shaped so clearly they needed it so I think it needs to be made compulsory I think that um, a lot more work needs to be done with like the students union and societies because what it happened to me where yeah academically I did fine but socially I didn't do as well because I didn't have access to a lot of the support the groups that people had access to I mean yeah COVID did play a part in that towards the end of my studies but for the first two years I didn't have access to all the social groups that other people had access to. So I think more work needs to be done there. And I think the main thing that needs to change is career advice needs to be more tailored so that people feel supported and feel that they actually have support up until they finish their studies and even afterwards as well. Because I don't think career advice at uni is tailored to people with disabilities. Saim Akhtar, I cannot agree with you more when you say that uh, disability education is something which uh, should be made compulsory. we certainly feel education um, educated sitting here in the studio just talked having spoken to you for 15 minutes so or probably 10 so really thank you uh, again it's an honor to speak to you thank you very much for for, for all the work that you do thank you very much for for giving back for joining a charity and and trying to help um, other people that need uh, support um, really uh, you are an inspiration to to all of us no, thanks for having me it's been good to have the chance to talk Excellent. Thank you very much uh, for your time, Saima Akhtar. <coughs> Thank you very much for joining us. So that was Saima Akhtar, who is uh, who's born blind, um, studied English literature and creative writing, and is currently working as an employment coach with a charity. Uh, we're, we're coming to towards the end um, of the hour in this segment, uh, Imam Salman. So to close off this segment, what would you say are the um, are Islam's teaching around teachings around? Uh, around uh, disabled people, uh, we you touched on it a little bit in the beginning. Mm. 
does Islam discriminate between uh, white and black and um, and more specifically here between um, uh, uh, deaf and, and, and somebody who's who's fully able-bodied? So yeah, um, as, as, as we did discuss in the beginning, yeah, de- Islam definitely has um, no teaching of discrimination whatsoever. Um, rather, Islamic history has a shining record of many examples of people who while having some kind of disability were included and had a prominent status in society. For instance, uh, Abdullah uh, uh, ibn Umm Maktoum, uh, who was blind, was among the first to accept Islam. He was devoted to the Prophet, peace be upon him, and extremely eager to memorize the Quran. Uh, when the Prophet arrived in Medina, he appointed Abdullah to be one of the Muslims, so the one that calls to prayer. And on several occasions, the Prophet, may peace be upon him, placed Abdullah uh, in charge of Medina in his absence. So obviously, uh, we, we can definitely see that um, the disability doesn't mean that he didn't have any other skills, but the Prophet def- uh, made sure that all his other skills were, were, were used and, 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 and brought to light. So um, uh, another, uh, I mean, uh, the, we, we have various examples of, of Muslim scholars uh, in the eras following the Prophet uh, who rose to great prominence in Islam society despite having um, disabilities such as um, uh, Atta ibn Abi Rabah who is a prominent early Muslim jurist and uh, Hadith transmitter um, among the generation of uh, Tabi'un. Uh, he served as the Mufti of Makkah um, and Mufti would basically mean the, 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 the judge or someone that, that, that gives an Islamic verdict. Um, in the 7th and 8th centuries. Then we have the examples of uh, Suleiman bin Mehran As-Sadi, um, a Muslim scholar among the generation of uh, Tabiun again, who was a notable muhaddis, um, again someone that brings the narrations of a Hadith and a Qari, um, despite um, to uh, his, his, his poor eyesight. Um, so this is, goes to show that having a disability does not have to be seen as a limitation but rather a strength uh, and Allah burdens not a soul beyond its capacity it shall have the reward it turns and it shall get the punishment it incurs thank you very much um, for that uh, Imam Salman um, uh, uh, we are coming towards um, or very close to the five o'clock news uh, before we go to the news just a reminder of the second topic which we will start right after the news break and that's about looking at Islam beyond the culture and ethnicity. What does Islam offer? Um, uh, Islam uh, is is a religion of over one billion Muslims uh, living across the, across the board. What does Islam offer to the wider world? That's after this news break. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text as this is a recording and lines are now closed. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. In the name of Allah, the most gracious, ever merciful. Um, dear listeners, welcome back to the second hour of the Drive Time Show live here from the Voice of Islam 
um, studios and uh, you are joined by uh, myself, Salman, and um, Daniel Zia, who uh, we did um, speak with you in the first hour in regards to disabilities and uh, specifically um, about the difficulties that disabled individuals are facing when it comes to their studies and uh, universities specifically and um, some some great um, eye-opening conversations that we had with our guest callers so if you missed our first hour I would definitely recommend to listen back um, to the recording in the second hour uh, of today we have for you um, the topic which is Islam which goes beyond culture and uh, ethnicity. Now, in a world where there are more than 1 billion Muslims living across the globe, from Africa to China to North America even, um, and living really in the in the farthest corners of the earth, many haven't heard um, of the likes of Mauritius and Tuvalu. Um, the way of life or culture is different for all these people, but their religion and their religious practices are uniform. Islam specifically came for people of all backgrounds and all walks of life, but it bases um, the culture it seeks to promote on the foundation of a firm belief in the existence of a uniquely divine singular creator. Yes, with God's revelation, Islam really is a recipe for synthesizing brotherhood transcendent of race, culture, or creed. Many people in the West, for example, consider Islam to be a religion of the Middle East. However, as we said, Islam is a global religion. It fosters a unique manner of mutual love and affection, togetherness, and tolerance for others who are are very different from yourself. These universal and profound teachings of Islam are meant to create a universal human culture based on the uh, on the unity of God Almighty and equality of mankind. Islam is therefore beyond culture or ethnicity. Islam came from all for all places and all times. We shouldn't think of only the Middle East or any or a particular area or a particular ethnicity language nation when we think of Islam. And today's discussion we will talk about how Islam really can be a force for unification. Um, that is something. Um, so w- w- when we are living our, our sort of normal lives here, here in the UK, for instance, so um, being a Muslim has a very specific picture to you hmm. because that's something that has been portrayed to you um, within your family um, then also through the medias. Absolutely. So what you would imagine of a Muslim is someone who is very, I would say, um, Arabic looking <laughs> or, 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 has stereotypical. A, yeah. or or has a certain uh, type of, of veil if you um, mm. talk about the, 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 the ladies, right? Mm. But or, or beard, uh, yeah, talking about men. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Mm. So it is, it is very sort of um, um, very, very lim- limited examples that we've mm. had. But then, um, thanks to the Ahmadiyya community, because Islam has spread far and wide, we have seen so many cultures um, that have sort of come together and have shown us that Islam doesn't have to be um, a a specific type of clothing or a specific specific 
uh, way of living. Rather, it is something that can be um, amended according to each and every culture. One thing that we need to follow is the, the Islamic teachings, uh, the, the five pillars of Islam. Um, all you need to do to be a Muslim are, are follow certain teachings, but the rest of it um, is, is really up to you. And we have, uh, uh, um, thank God that we have seen people really from, from Europe to America to South America, Muslims really across the world that are practicing Islam in their own way. Mm. Uh, it is essentially Islam at the end of the day, mm. but that, that, that stigma has, has been taken away, right? Absolutely. Um, we will uh, discuss this topic in further detail, um, but for now we have with us um, the first guest caller of today's show, which is Imam Gamar Zafar, who is a missionary of the Amnia community and uh, at the moment um, serves uh, at the online section of the Ahmadiyya, uh, um, the Ahmadiyya um, TV channel that we have, Muslim Television Ahmadiyya. Uh, Imam uh, Kamar Zafar, Assalamu alaikum wa and thank you very much for joining the Drive Time Show. Welcome, salam, peace be upon you. It's a pleasure. Jazakallah for taking out uh, your time to be with us today. Um, Imam Kamar, um, according to Islam, can a person follow their culture and religion at the same time? And um, are there any overlapping issues there? Okay, that's a very interesting question. Um, <laughs> I think when we normally talk about culture and we talk about religion, it's normally stigmatized. It's normally looked at with a negative image. And sure, there are justified reasons why, behind why that might be. But there are also many positive things that exist both within uh, culture that can obviously also exist in religion as well. There are a lot of cultures... For those of us who live in the UK, for, for us, for example, there are a lot of things in our society we, which, which we would happily adopt and we see them as positive traits that someone should actually be practicing in their day-to-day -day life. And that's not something that we don't see in our religion, but it is also something that we see here living in the UK, for example, and they're being practiced, uh, they're, they're actually traits practiced by people who aren't even religious in the, in the first place. So to adopt those things from your culture, is something that which Islam not only allows but actually asks us to adopt. And the Holy Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam actually said something about this, and he said that the 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 wise word or the the word of wisdom is the lost property of a believer. Wherever he finds it, wherever he finds it, he will adopt it. And this is really important because what the Holy Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam is saying to us is that yes. You are aware of, as Muslims, as of the Islamic teachings. You know what they are. And wherever else you find something that is also on the same lines, which is also very positive, then you should also take part in that as well. And you should also adopt those traits as well. So here in the UK, for example, if Islam is already telling us that we should be charitable, for example, then here in the UK when we come and you see that there are already so many humanitarian efforts and charities that are also doing similar things. Then for a Muslim, it's dutiful and, and they're actually bound to actually take part in that and adopt that as well. <clears throat> so that's, I think, one thing where I would like to actually say that it's a positive way of looking at it. And that's what we should first and foremost always try to do when we look at things. <laughs> um, secondly, of course, you did mention that there could be some disparities between culture and, re and religion. And that's bound to happen because, of course, as Muslims, for us, the Quran is a code of conduct. It's a set of rules. And there are things that we can do, and there are things that we can't do. And that means that there will be certain things out there in the world where the religion of Islam will tell us, you can't do this, 
and certain cultures may actually be things um, maybe actually propagating that thing for instance very simple everybody already knows drinking of alcohol is something which is not permitted in islam in some countries that might be a cultural trait uh, so much so that it's become a uh, a local local infrastructure there for example we have public houses here in the uk obviously muslims are then advised that with regards to such things they must abstain from that and the holy prophet Muhammad to him it was also revealed in the holy quran that whenever you hear and you observe a word of ignorance or you see something which is wrong then you stay away from that place and you respond to that thing with just by saying peace and you walk on and that's something which generally muslims are advised to do however like we've mentioned if it's something which is not permitted and it's something that is positive then absolutely um, culture and religion can actually be intertwined in, in that sense absolutely most right, right. no, certainly um, for that. but at the same time there are some cultural customs that are not in accordance um, with Islam for yeah. example um, some Asian wedding traditions are prohibited and, and I mean that this is obviously one example that we give because of our background but obviously okay. there are uh, certain traditions really uh, across the globe so how can a Muslim live in a society where they can't partake in certain customs without feeling excluded okay it's really cool um I think this is a valid question. When people are first introduced to Islam, they see it first and foremost as a religion which is mostly in Arabic. They see it as a religion where most of the prophets were from the East or from Arabia. And they might wonder, how is this going to be compatible for someone like me who might be potentially living here in the West, in, the, in Europe, even in London? And, and that's really important. But when we open the Quran, we see that the, the entire Quran isn't even addressed to the East mm -hmm. or to Asia or mm -hmm. to the Middle East even. It's literally God Almighty saying to the Prophet wasallam, Oh, all of mankind, we've created you in tribes. Yes, we have. Mm -hmm. We've done that so that you may recognize one another. That's the purpose of it. Mm -hmm. That does in no way limit your ability to actually abide by the set of rules that we are now about to mention, which are in the Holy Quran. And then we go ahead and we see that the, the, the rules that Muslims abide by worldwide they are actually practiced and implemented by millions of Muslims all over the world. That's number one. Like you said, and we've already sort of mentioned it before, there are certain limitations, and they're quite rightly there, that Islam puts in place to protect civilization and people at home. For example, we've already mentioned drinking, we've already mentioned, uh, we haven't mentioned, you already, already know that Muslims, for example, don't consume pork. You've mentioned uh, culturally one thing, that there are certain weddings that indulge in extravagance. And so all of these things, are there they're set in place for certain reasons uh, for muslims to, to follow now if of course a muslim ends up in a circumstance or in a place where some of these things which are generally permitted and not permitted in islam they end up facing that thing then like i've already said the most simple thing that that muslim can do is abstain from that we're really really privileged here actually in the west to have lots of options um to do one thing and not do the other so there are always ways that we can find to sort of compromise the situation especially when it comes to dieting and consumption of food or, or drink there are a lot of easy ways to come out of that <clears throat> with regards to extravagance um, we, we spoke about just culture and the fact that there might be some weddings where they have certain cultural traits what Islam generally says is that we do not tend to we shouldn't be you know extravagant we shouldn't be doing our weddings and our traditions in ways that we're wasting money mm -hmm. and these are things which Nowadays, even the West is beginning to adopt. They're slowly beginning to realize that actually we need to live more economically. We need to live more efficiently. We need to live more ergonomically as well. 
So even now, we're lucky to be in an age where slowly people are beginning to realize the importance of these things. And as a Muslim, it's absolutely our duty that when we end up in a place where that isn't happening, then the least that we can do is not partake in that. Because even that in itself is a message to our brothers and sisters around us that perhaps this isn't the best way to go forward. The Holy Prophet Muhammad has actually said there are three ways that a Muslim can deal with something when they see it wrong. But they don't quite know what to do. So if, it, if it's in your ability to stop it with your hands, then you can do that. So let's perhaps you're, doing, you're, you're in a place of authority and you see something that's happening that's wrong, then you, you can actually stop that with your hands. If you see something that you, you think is wrong and you don't know what to do, but you're not in a place of authority, but they're your friends, they're your family, then you can actually admonish them with your words. You can tell them that maybe you disagree with this. And even if you can't do that, maybe you're in a situation where they're not your friends and they're not your family and maybe you're the one who's under the authority. Then the least you can do is actually abstain from doing that thing. And all of these three things, the purpose behind that for a Muslim to do that is to first of all save themselves from falling into the very things that Islam has come to save us from, which are these sins and these vices. And secondly, to give our brothers and sisters around us as to what, why, why is my brother and my sister, why aren't they doing this with us? And then when they have this curiosity, they may ask you, and they may, they may want to find out, why, why aren't you um, doing it like this? Why aren't you spending money here? And then we should be in a position where if we are practicing Islam correctly, we can tell them that we aren't doing this. Alternatively, this is how we actually practice. And this is how it's benefited us. This is how it's actually better for us. And that in position will be an admonishment for them and also for those around us. And it's certainly again, like I said, what the Holy Quran says, that in, indeed it's, the duty of a believer to admonish that's what we should always be doing whether it's verbally whether it's even by doing it silently just through our actions so this is how i think rather than looking at it as a burden that oh we can't do this we can't take part in these events with our friends we should rather look at it as a responsibility that yes we already don't do this but our brothers and sisters do and if we really truly care for them we want to show them that actually the grass might be greener on the other side we want to tell them that right so that's, we would only want to tell them that if we truly do care for their well-being. So that's why I think we shouldn't look at it as a burden, but we'd rather should look at it as, as an onus on us, a responsibility on us mm-hmm. to help others understand that this is our way of conduct, this is what Islam teaches us, and this is why it's better. And this is how it's helped us in the long run. Most certainly. And I mean, you, you rightly said that um, it has come to a time where people have started realizing that the Islamic way of maybe uh, of of, of um, celebration, which is in a uh, supposed to be in a more modest way, is is the the better way. And um, I think it it won't be wrong to say that maybe they are have now taken over uh, over this um, Islamic tradition, and uh, the Muslims these days are maybe spending too much on celebrations. Um, uh, Imam Kamal, um, another thing that we would like to discuss with you, and I, and I think it is a very important topic, and a very relevant topic rather, uh, which is sl- slavery. So, um, why is it uh, historically significant that the Holy Prophet, uh, peace <coughs> and blessings of Allah be upon him, freed his slaves or um, treated them as equals rather than property? Um, haven't others in history also worked uh, to end the uh, slavery? Yeah, H- here's the thing. I don't, I don't think it's fair to assume or to say that Islam monopolizes all of the good that happens in the world. There are lots of people and lots of bodies, entities that do good. Mm-hmm. And they may not necessarily be Muslim, 
but n- never has Islam claimed or, or will ever claim that all good is, 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 is from us. So there are people that will always go out and do things as charities, as bodies that do great things and they should continue to do that. Um, what I think it's important to remember is that uh, we know that here in the UK, for instance, uh, slavery was abolished in around 1807. I think in the US, in America at that time, it was about 1857. So this is actually quite recent. Um, it's only been a couple of hundred years where this has happened. And of course, the fact that it's happened in itself is a great thing. Um, what we do know through history, especially in America, is that once the emancipation happened of slaves, especially African slaves, um, the way that they, even though they were emancipated, there was not a significantly strong infrastructure put in place to cater for the rehousing, to cater for education, to cater for employment. And even though they may have been put in a situation where they were now quote unquote free, there were difficulties that were placed on them economically um, and and so forth. So perhaps that in hindsight there could have been better ways for someone to have done that. I think why it's significant for to look at how the Holy Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam did it. It's really important to look at how, how he did it. Is because not only did he free the slaves, but he allowed for a system which first strengthened them financially and academically before they set their foot out on free land. And this is really important. Uh, I think in that, that time in the Arabian Peninsula, where slavery, of course, we know wasn't invented by Islam. It already existed before Islam, all the way down to the time of Ramses and, and, and the Egyptian pharaohs. People would pillage villages and then take um, people as ransom and turn them into slaves. When the Holy Prophet ﷺ came, we already know that not only did he free his own slaves, but he instructed all of them to free any slaves that they had. But this wasn't allowed to be done in a manner and tell their slaves to leave, and that was it. They actually, the owners had a responsibility to first either let them stand up on their own feet, they should have had some kind of income, some kind of salary, they should have learned some kind of skill that that would benefit them in the workplace, uh, or academically otherwise. So that when they do become free, then they are able to support themselves. And this is something that the Holy Prophet had made absolutely sure that would happen. And that's why you can see that when those slaves, they were freed finally, the ones in Mecca and Medina, not only were they able to stand up on their own feet, but then they were able to go and help other people as well. They were able to go and support others as well around them because they didn't have to worry too much as others would have had to about how they're going to survive. It was more about, okay, I'm, I'm free now. What can I do to progress further? And I think that was one huge thing which allowed that society to thrive because those slaves weren't just turned into free people, they were turned into productive people. And that's probably one key difference, um, which, of course, we know that here in the UK and America, over time, that also happened anyway. Um, it's still probably happening, and the journey is there. But mm-hmm. that was much, much amplified in the time of the Holy Prophet That's why I think it's absolutely important. It's also very important because of the time that he did it in. Um, it's, it's really a reminder for us that perhaps when he did it, you could see that he did it against all odds. There was absolutely no financial political benefit to the Holy Prophet to do that. Unfortunately, today we see um, a lot of um, humanitarian efforts, movements, may actually be fronted by a political motive. Mm-hmm. It might just be done to win the appraisal of certain groups or certain minorities to, to get votes or, or, or whatever. 
the Holy Prophet didn't would not have had any of that because the slaves at that time they and in that time unfortunately in that society were seen as pretty much next to nothing. Um, getting them onto your side would not have had been much benefit, but he did it anyway because of course as an ethical um, religion here as Islam, it was taught that all mankind has been created from one single clock where all equal and regardless of whether we're Arab or non Arab and this is exactly what the Prophet said, they are all equal. So not only did he verbally pronounce that, but he practically actually implemented that as well. And I think it's really important to actually mention that we mentioned that, yes, um, can Islam and culture mix or not? And I think, like I said, Islam doesn't monopolize all good. So the Holy Prophet married Hazrat <coughs> Khatija, excuse me, radiallahu anha. She also had slaves at that time and she emancipated them as well. And but she, you, you could argue that at that time in the early ages of Islam, maybe it wasn't something that which was openly commanded in Islam at that time. Right. She may have done it out of the goodness of her heart. And sure. that, of course, is equally implausible. So, yes, these things happen. Um, they happen within the, the religion of Islam. They happen mm-hmm. without. But I think the main thing to distinguish is that whenever Islam does something which is for good, number one, it doesn't have a political motive. And number two, whatever the good is, the result of it is that the person who the good has been done to, at the end of it, they will be left established in a solid way where they're financially capable and they're academically also on point as well. Absolutely. And I mean, this is, again, something that reminds us um, how much the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, was actually ahead of his time. And uh, that also then obviously um, uh, tells us that this cannot have been just a mere human effort, rather some someone was divinely guided because, uh, I mean, something like this being done really thousands of years ago, it, it, it is really incredible. Um, Imam Kumar, lastly, something um, that I want to ask you is, um, obviously, we have now discussed um, slavery and other is- Islamic uh, traditions from, from back then, about 1,500, 1,600 years ago. But more in, in, in current times, when there are so many laws and charities and organizations in place to fight for equality, why should people follow Islam's model for equality? I think, again, like, like I said, um, Islam doesn't monopolize all good. Um, number two, there are lots of charities that may already be practicing Islamic principles. Um, and that probably is the case for, for a, lot of, a lot of charities around the world where uh, they prioritize the humanitarian welfare of people all over the world. They don't distinguish over caste, creed or color or even gender. And nor do they concern themselves with uh, financial profit. Of course, we may not be talking about every single charity, but those that do adhere to these principles, and you can already say that they are adhering to Islamic principle, and then they should continue to do that. And for us to support that and to actually stand on side of that is absolutely an Islamic duty as well. So this is really, really one, I think, important thing to, to remember. Secondarily, uh, secondly rather, Islam, like I said, has no political motives. And this is absolute. Um, everything that a Muslim does, does it only for one reason, for the pleasure of God Almighty. Not only for the pleasure, but we also have the fear of upsetting our Lord as well. So when these two things are kept in mind of a Muslim authority, those who truly practice Islam, nothing can become political, politically motivated, nothing can become personally motivated. This is where mainly things do go wrong, mm-hmm. when seemingly good agendas, seemingly charitable motives are spoilt. Um, they rot, they're, they're rot away because people have found vested interests in them, 
they found personal um, benefits in them and that's what turns those seemingly good motives into actually things which are not that beneficial at all. So when a Muslim does something like this, they know that God is watching them and that's extremely important. They also know that the reason that they're doing it is to please God. And if they do anything which is unethical, they do anything which is wrong, even if it's only in their heart and nobody else can see it, Mm -hmm. then a Muslim knows that no matter how fruit, um, you know, how much fruit that that action might bear in society, the, because the intention was not correct, their 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 deed may not be counted as any deed in front of God Almighty. Now, to a normal person, this these kinds of things would never matter. They would not even think in this way, because that is not what an irreligious state would ever teach somebody. But for somebody who's a Muslim, they would have this at the forefront of their mind that regardless of what they can get away with in front of humans, they can't get away with it in front of God. And that's really, really important. But that does require, like I said, there to be a true Islamic adherence behind it. How do we actually even ensure that? I think there's one way that we can definitely see that, by the grace of God, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community does have a divinely established leadership, which is a khilafat, a caliphate. And the belief is there that this institute is divinely um, led and that's really important as well because on the one hand not only can people see their faith in God but they can see inspiration and guidance through this individual who God has placed as a vice chairman on earth and when he is there to govern affairs and do it with absolute justice then you can truly say that yes there indeed is somebody out here who's watching and making sure that things are done according to what Islam teaches us and just like we have leaders across the world, we, we can say strongly that this one leader is for us an Islamic leader who can do that and abide and, 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 you know, and they can implement Islamic principles to the letter. So this is really important as well. So while I think, like I said in the beginning, that all of these other charities and foundations who are doing good, that's absolutely amazing. But the furthest added security that you will get when you're dealing with an institution which is not only led by divinely inspired leadership, but they're Muslim and they have the fear of God, you will have the further security that even when the public are not watching and even when their cameras aren't recording, these people should have the fear of God inside them. And they will still conduct themselves in a way as if they were in front of people, even if they were behind closed doors. I think this is really important um, from... Absolutely, absolutely. Um, Imam Kamar, uh, it was a pleasure speaking with you, though I haven't seen you in a long time. Um, I wish you a, a lovely day ahead. Jazakallah. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. You too. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be and so yeah, this is we were speaking with Imam Kamar and um, Daniel. I think uh, without further ado, we should take our next guest caller. Absolutely, we should. Um, so the next guest is uh, uh, Mr. Kaleem Mirza, who um, has uh, is also joined us uh, live. Um, uh, Mr. Mirza is a financial and economic analyst, and he holds an MBA from London Business School. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be with you. Thank you for joining Good us. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, let me start by asking you. So. So my belief is that Islam is a universal religion Um, and Islam also um, uh, bans charging of interest. Uh, Do you think there is a linkage there? Well, absolutely, because if you think about it, you know, if you go back to the very basics of, you know, what is a Muslim and how we define ourselves, one of our uh, spiritual underpinnings is, you know, the five pillars of Islam. And in, in one of those uh, fundamentally 
So you've got, you know, the belief in the uh, five daily prayers, the oneness of God, Hajj, Rosa, and Zakat. And Zakat is uh, clearly mentioned many, many times in the in the Quran, both um, uh, directly and indirectly. And it's, uh, mm-hmm. it's a form of spiritual sacrifice. Um, and it, it, it's it's like anything, it's it's open it's open to a degree of interpretation. Um, some aspects of it, you know, in terms of what types of contribution uh, come under the remit of uh, zakat, for example, and how does zakat differ, for example, from you know more general forms of financial sacrifice like sadaqah. Um, but it's a very timely topic because we're talking about sacrifice, just having celebrated Eid al-Zahar, and mm-hmm. you know, to quote our spiritual leader, which is. Uh, Hazrat Mirza Masuram, the fifth successor to the Promised Messiah, and I will quote, and he said, "We have gathered to celebrate Eid al-Zaha on the Eid of Sacrifice. Not only in Mecca, but all over the world, Muslims will be sacrificing animals. However, Allah has explained that although this is part of Eid and its righteous deed, if the essence of sacrifice is not born in mind during this practice, then these sacrifices are worthless. God is not desirous of the blood of animals." nor is he in need of this sacrifice. If anyone is bereft of taqwa, righteousness, even if hundreds of thousands of animals are sacrificed, God's pleasure cannot be won. And that's a beautiful summary of you know, the concept of sacrifice. And we can relate this concept of sacrifice in many ways, but Eid al-Zahar, you know, we talk about the supreme sacrifice uh, of Prophet Abraham, you know, many, many hundreds of years, many, you know, hundreds of many thousands of years ago, uh, when in, you know, dire circumstances, he was prepared to uh, give away the life of his son. But bringing it back, you know, in, in relation to, um, you know, is, is the, the religion of Islam, um, you know, the word zakat is mentioned, you know, 30 times, um, and 20 of them are associated with prayers, and that shows you the strong linkage between um, zakat and, and supplication and in some places zakat is mentioned you know alongside the prayer words of prayers in the same sequence of verses and I quote those who humble themselves in their prayers and who are active indeed in zakat and that's a, a quote from the Quran um, in, in English and you know yeah, scholars refer to the verses of the Quran in the context of Makkan verses and Medina verses mm-hmm. but one of the most significant things of uh, zakat is that it's second only to prayer in terms of uh, its uh, spiritual significance for a Muslim. Yes. So, you know, there is, a, even within those five fundamental pillars, uh, one can see that zakat is, a, you know, it's an important, it's a very, very important uh, component of one's, um, one's, you know, daily lives and daily, you know, how one engages oneself, um, mm-hmm. I- I- both in terms of, his relationship to God and his relationship to mankind, relationship to God through prayer, and relationship to mankind through his financial sacrifices. So, you know, zakat is, is a way of, you know, spiritually purifying your wealth. And it's, it's so, you know, wealth today, I mean, we're living in a very materialistic world, hmm. and you can see that although there is, you know, the, the world and the world at large has... has in terms of economic output has grown immensely over mm. the last, you know, ever so many, you know, since the, hundred, since the Industrial Revolution, mm. you know, over the last two, three hundred years. But we can see that, you know, through the forces of international relations, um, wealth and power 
are concentrated in the hands of few. Right. Okay. Whether it you know in terms of the great geo powers of the United States and China, etc., or even you know amongst even in poorer countries where you see rich folk living cheek by jowl, uh, you know, next to poor folk, and unfortunately, um, you know, people, you know, in some respects, the, the sacrifice also becomes a bit, a bit of a, a ridicule, you know, through, through the lens of social media. We can see in Pakistan, for example, hmm. during Eid al-Zaha, how people are willing to pay, you know, hundreds and thousands of pounds to sacrifice animals, even though there is no relationship to the actual value of that animal in that monetary term, Let's but it becomes g- g- it g- becomes a, it becomes a bit of a, a farce. Absolutely. So uh, you talked about you know uh, wealth being restricted in a few hands. Let's talk about yeah. that a little bit. Um, you've talk- also talked about zakat. So in the context of an Islamic economic system, and and we believe that that economic system is for the world. And for humanity in general, I've you know I've just done uh, I've just googled the list of uh, uh, eight most richest people in the world, and they include the likes of uh, as you would expect Elon Musk, Jeff, Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, um, and a few more. Um, and I've just done a back of the envelope uh, calculation of the wealth as as the numbers provided by Google, and it comes to about one point um, one trillion dollars. If yeah. you were to levy zakat on that. Um, on that wealth, uh, you know, you can just see the benefits um, that that money, two point five percent of that, uh, will be going back to to society, to the poor segments of society. So, is 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 that the point that you're trying to make when you say that you know Islam's economic system is 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 for humanity in general, and um, and and that is what Islam has to offer to the world? Well, the system of zakat is not a static system. Hmm. It, it, you know, as long as I'm living, okay. You have to pay 2.5% every year. Absolutely. I have to pay 2.5% every year. So you might think, well, 2.5% on 1.1 trillion is not a lot of money in the context of a global population of, what, 6 or 7 billion. But, you know, if you compound that up over many, many years or continually, uh, and if you, you know, were to invest that money, and what I, what I mean by invest is not financially invest, but physically invest in providing tools, techniques, help, you know, for people to learn to stand on their own, you know, two feet. So, for example, you know, if a, if a, if a person wants to start a small business, okay, in a, in, a, in a poor country, he lacks access to capital, he lacks access to, um, you, know, you know, techniques of uh, acquiring information and knowledge. So, you know, I could give, through my act of charity, I could provide him that initial working capital free of cost and mm-hmm. say, you know, through a profit share, you know, through your labor, you know, you could take these raw materials, okay, and turn turn something which is very insignificant into something significant. That value add could feed your could feed your family for a week, for example, and through the profit of your labor, okay, if you if I so chose or if he so chose, he could give me a return on that through a profit share. But that is a much more equitable system of wealth creation and wealth distribution rather than what some people term the excessive financialization of the global financial economy where you have enormous power and wealth hmm. you know within financial concentrated in a few hands yeah and within within a few hands yeah and where a lot of the flows of financial flows are engineered or they the, the, the accumulation of wealth 
through knowledge and power and even through coercive legal practices. For example, there are cases where companies go bankrupt, okay, and people extract value not through, um, you know, a financial loss, but through the, you know, the creative means of, uh, of the, you know, the complex interplay between accounting and law, etc., uh, etc., et where, you know, again, it's people who have access to money, you know, can basically game the system. Absolutely. Mr. Mr. We, uh, you know, we're running short of time and there's one more question I want to get in uh, before I let you go. And that is about um, interest. So you wrote to the uh, Financial Times uh, uh, and, and you said that UK economy has gone stagnant and that interest rates um, are bound to increase. We're already seeing that. Can any inspiration be drawn from the Islamic model of finance that we're talking about to help struggling economies uh, such as the one in UK? I think you need to change the banking system. So the banking system probably takes much more of an equity approach. Mm-hmm. So at the moment, banks just give you capital. They charge you an interest. They don't have any real linkage into what you're doing with that business, how you're creating the money. Through a legal contract, okay, you have to pay them back. Yeah. But if, if, if we could design a system where, A, more people would have access to capital and banks would have a much more... Um, involved approach that is to say they you know they target only specific aspects of an eco- economic development let's take you know we, we talk about carbon neutral and net zero these are terms banded about and how you know people are talking about how the economy will evolve over the next 20 30 years so this is a model of sustainable economic growth and development so here you could say you know should you know and you could ask yourself rather than give billions and billions of dollars to the private equity industry and you know, through their you know speculation and engineering, they generate wealth. A much more equitable form of wealth creation could be you know through sustainable means of farming, through you know financing sustainable means of um, energy development and equitable distribution of um, access to resources, where um, you know through microfinance, for example, where you don't charge usurious rates of interest. Hmm. Right. Thank you very much, uh, Ikalim Mirza, for joining us. Uh, very insightful. Really appreciate your input. Thank you so very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. So that was uh, Mr. Uh, Kalim Mirza, uh, who was talking to us about uh, what benefits the Islamic economic uh, model can offer. And, and, and just to sort of uh, make the point, uh, Imam Salman, that I was making earlier. So, you know, the eight richest people, uh, mm-hmm. according to Google, yeah. um, own about... Um, $1.1 trillion worth of assets. Right. 2.5% of that is $27.5 billion. Right. Um, and as was uh, Mr. Meza made the point that it's not something that you just once in a lifetime. You have mm. to do that every year if you have wealth accumulated and you're not using that wealth. Exactly. Um, you multiply 27.5 by 10 mm-hmm. um, in 10 years, say, so that's $275 billion. Just imagine what $275 billion, the impact that sort of money, just just that, will have in in, in the African conti- continent. If, in, it, in, if it's put in the right hands. If it's put in the right hands mm-hmm. and if it's made available, first of all, exactly, uh, exactly. as a result of the system that, uh, that Islam offers. So I guess that's the point that we're trying to make and we, we've hopefully been able to make that point um, uh, to our listeners here. Let's go straight on to our last guest um, for the show, which is uh, Ms. Atia Shokat, um, who is a member of uh, Organic Organic Farming 
for IEEE, which is the um, International Ahmadiyya Architects uh, and Engineers Association. Assalamu alaikum, peace be with you. Thank you for joining us. Nice to be here. Uh, so, Ms. Jockett, let me start by asking you uh, about the efforts of uh, IEEE um, and how it models Islamic uh, teaching of equality. Well, basically, the, the religion of Islam, the word Islam means peace. And peace, the Arabic word literally translates as peace. But if you go further, peace can only be achieved if, first of all, we fulfill the rights due to God. And the second part of Islam is fulfilling the rights to his creation. That's not just fulfilling rights of your own, which means just your family members or just your own kind, but it involves the whole of humanity. And for somebody who believes in the religion of Islam, they must fulfill the rights, not just worship of God, but the dues that are due to um, his creation as well. Absolutely. Um, right. And uh, Ms. Um, Shokud, you're helping with some very um, commendable, I would say, agricultural efforts, particularly in the Bustani Mehdi. Um, and your your work can provide work and food security for Africans. How does your faith lead you to do this work um, for the betterment of others? Well, basically, um, recently, since the Ukraine and Russian war, the wheat prices have gone up and so have the fertilizer prices. Now, for a continent such as Africa, which is already in a deprived state and living hand-to-mouth, when you uh, couple uh, this effect, uh, they, as a continent, have struggled even more. They haven't been able to keep up with the high prices, demand of wheat and the fertilizers which they need to grow their own crops. And they have suffered. And in the Horn of Africa, um, at the moment, over 14 million people across, which includes Somalia, Ethiopia and Kenya, are already on the verge of starvation. And about a half of them are children. And this is going to rise to 20 um, million. And if the rains fail, which they do in Africa, and irrigation is totally dependent mostly on most farmers, there they depend on rainfall. If they had bad rainfall as well, this is going to push them far beyond any scenario we've seen. Absolutely. And mm-hmm. And so what the vision of our beloved Khalifa, Hazrat Mirza Masur Ahmed, who is also an agriculturist, but his vision is based on a divine vision as well, which is um, being able to foretell um, at the moment, you know, yes, there is a huge upset in um, Ukraine and Russia, but nobody is taking that much interest in how it's going to affect a poor continent such as Africa. And it, as I said, it is affecting, but beloved um, Hazur, um, the Caliph, um, has been uh, uh, encouraging uh, people. Um, in fact, he's not encouraging, he's been uh, through IEEE. He has encouraged a program in which um, a model farming, an organic way without fertilizers can be set up uh, so the people of Africa can be helped in um a basic way with less uh, amenities to be able to sustain their food for their survival. 
and uh, two points were put forward. One, the caliph, uh, the present caliph of the Andy Muslim community, um, he believes that um, there is huge potential in Africa and that it needs to be realized and it can Africa can benefit from that potential. The second is, which is pretty phenomenal, is that <clears throat> beloved uh, Hazul, uh, the caliph, he believes that in terms of access to food, I know there is a shortage now and even the continent itself is suffering, but and food is currently exported to Africa, but in the future, we may have to obtain food from Africa, which is pretty mind-blowing if you look at the situation. Most certainly, definitely, and um, that is again uh, the division um, and something that we can only expect from someone that is truly divinely guided. Now, uh, um, that we are speaking about food, um, why is um, agriculture such an important practice for the economy and for quality of life in Africa? Well, at the moment, there are many NGOs and there are many do-gooders and many people who have tried to help Africa. They have been funded with billions and billions of dollars. But unfortunately, the methods which they rely on are keep them in chains of slavery. I'll give you the example that when they are given seed, they're given a hybrid seed, and then they are told um, that uh, the problem with a hybrid seed is that once you have a crop, you cannot save that seed for your next year's plantation. You depend, you are completely dependent every single year on the person who provides the seed to you. So again, that's taking away your sustainability. Second, um, uh, the farming techniques which have been taught in Africa rely on fertilizer, which is all, you know, good and well, but the fertilizer prices have gone up and it's impossible for normal farmers to be able to keep up to that rate. And even if you inject, even if they are able to buy um, fertilizer for their farm, their harvest or their crop would not sell as much to equate the same amount of profit. So they go into minus just by farming. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Most certainly. Um, and uh, Shokat, uh, another thing that I'd like to know is in regards um, to how do you um, incorporate the teachings of the Holy Prophet and the Holy Quran in your work at the IEEE? So our present caliph, um, his vision is humanitarian vision. It is without any reward, without any, uh, you know, there's no stipulations attached. When NGOs help, when other bodies help, they help with interest, which uh, sends Africa into an already, it's already in debt, but it, it's sending it into an inevitable debt that, debt that it's impossible for them to climb out of. But when the Indian Muslim community goes, they have sent, they have built wells, they have then, um, they started off by building wells, then they started off, uh, then they uh, progressed into uh, model villages, um, schemes, and then they provided um, hospitals nearby and education, like a model village scheme where you have the, your basic communities and then you have solar panels to provide electricity in very rural areas, um, helping people to be able to stand up on their feet so they can at least 
be the next generation which can speak for themselves and speak for their rights. So this is without any debt attached. It's solely funded by the efforts of the MB Muslim community. Um, there is no onus for them to pay uh, the community back. This is just a service for humanity and Islam teaches that um, uh, equality and the Holy Prophet's title is a very unique title. Um, different prophets are given different titles, but the title that the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, was given that he was called Alameen, which means he was the mercy for the whole of mankind. So, again, going back, when we see somebody suffer, we do not look at their color, we do not look at their background, we do not look at their caste or social standing or order. We are taught in Islam to help them and to do it without anything in return because we do it for the pleasure and the love of God. And that is what Islam means. Absolutely, absolutely. And that's very... Um inspirational and commendable at the same time um one thing that i would like like to ask uh, you um at the end is i mean living here in in the west obviously we are very very comfortable with, with, with our own lives and uh, when we speak or think of of holidays it's usually where are we going to go next who are we going to visit um but at the same time i i also personally know many of the members of the uh, the IEEE that travel to 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 africa and 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 um, other such countries what's um the the drive behind this um how does one think of actually going all the way to africa and and helping others instead of um, spending the time uh, for 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 pleasure and leisure i think it depends what your love is in life if your love is the world and you enjoy things which are amusement and you get a pleasure from that, then you will not enjoy, you know, doing things that, um, things that IAAA are doing. Mm -hmm. But if your focus is on God and you enjoy serving humanity, then I can assure you that the pleasure that one attains from serving God's creation and winning, trying to win the love of God, it supersedes any other worldly uh, enjoyment, any other worldly pleasure, and it doesn't come near it. I used to be in my youth, I used to be a youth worker for um, young girls, and I used to take them to amusement trips. You know, it was, it was seen as a thing to do, you know, um, whatever was happening in mm -hmm. London, amusement trips, or, you know, Alton Towers, I used to organize that. And yes, there is a certain enjoyment in doing that, but it's very trans—it's very transitory. It's not uh, for long. It's just for that moment, and it goes. But when you come close to God, and that pleasure that you attain from loving God or worshiping God—it's not just for that moment. It stays with you. That peace that you feel stays with you. And when you serve humanity just for the sake of God again with no reward, that again pleasure supersedes all worldly pleasures and it leaves you feeling peace. And unfortunately, the world we look in is far away from that peace because they are self-obsessed with this world and no matter how much they, you know, get the thing they want, which they think is the next big thing, 
they might for that couple of seconds, that hour, that two hours, admire the thing they like, but it's very, very, for that moment, it doesn't give a long-term pleasure. Long-term pleasure can only be had, and long-term, it's associated with peace. It can only be had with the worship of God and serving his creation. Absolutely. And on that note, um, Atiya Shokat, thank you very much for joining us. It was a, a true pleasure speaking with you. And I wish you lovely ahead. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. So, uh, yeah, we were just speaking with um, Atiya Shokat, who is a member of uh, the organic farming at the IAAAE. And uh, they are really doing a, a, an, a commendable job over there. And uh, as she rightly said, that um, all other pleasures and 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 and, the, and what we believe to be is fun is 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 very temporary, whereas the the true um, satisfaction comes with serving others. The Holy Prophet, uh, peace be upon him, said that you are brothers and sisters. You're all equal, no matter to which nation or tribe you belong, and no matter what your status is, you're all equal, just as the fingers of both hands are alike. Nobody can claim to have any distinctive right or greatness over another. The command which I give you today is not just for today, but it is forever. Always remember to and keep acting upon it until you return to your true master. And that is the message of the Prophet, that whatever you do in this life, you will be answerable to your master on the day of judgment. One question that we asked you today on our socials is what cultural practices go against your faith? And the answer which we have gotten um, clearly is the countless wedding traditions, actually. Um, today's uh, program, the both shows were produced by Sada Malik, Tayyiba Nasir and Soma Ahmed. And here are the news.